I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. Jared Allen with the... This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cavalier and NBA podcast named after first time all-star selection. Ignore the asterisk. I don't care if he's an injury replacement. Yes, normally I discount that type of all-star berth, but I think we as Cavs fans can all agree that Jared Allen deserved to be an all-star in the first place, the man leading the NBA in offensive rating and defensive rating. Tell me where you can find that. And I know what you're saying, Bob. What the hell does that matter? Royce O'Neal is second in offensive rating. Mikael Bridges is third. Clearly, it's a flawed metric. Okay, I'll give you that. But defensive rating is stocked by absolute juggernauts. Jokic, second. And Bede, third. Mobley, fourth. So that one seems to be pretty accurate, and I don't care anyway. It's a metric that I've chosen to highlight because it illustrates what I wanted to illustrate, which is that Jared Allen has ascended to the top of several statistics, advanced statistics, since I threw the weight of this podcast's name behind him. Fear the Fro endorsed? All-star. Is it a coincidence? Some would say yes. He doesn't even know you exist. I would say that's irrelevant. It can't be a coincidence. It's clearly linked hand in hand. And, and here's what I would suggest to you. Back in 2016, when the Cavaliers were trailing 3-1, I put my money where my mouth is. I put a lot of money on the Cleveland Cavaliers. I, I don't gamble. I should say that too. That's what makes this all the more impressive. I'm about to toot the shit out of my own horn. I put a lot of money on the Cleveland Cavaliers before that series to win. And they went down 3-1, and it was looking bleak. Not that I had any choice. I couldn't pull my money out of the bet at that point. But I put $800 down on the Cavs, which for me was a small fucking fortune. They won. I walked away with $3,800. That's how long the odds were. Now, would they have won without me? Some would say yes. Some would say, again, you're irrelevant to this whole thing. Stop trying to co-opt the Cavaliers' NBA title, give credit where credit was due, which is LeBron James for the block, Kyrie Irving for some massive performances, and Draymond Green for being a stupid asshole who just punched LeBron in the balls. But really, it's more about Steven Adams getting kneed repeatedly in the testicles. A cumulative effort, one may say. But how did I arrive back here? I'm down the Draymond Green wormhole again. The point is, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think me putting my money where my mouth was back in 2016. Certainly, you could say it had no impact on the Cavs winning a title, but I would disagree. And I think me putting my podcast name where my mouth is has directly contributed to the ascension of Jared Allen. Agree to disagree if you don't feel the same. To where we sit right now, the Cleveland Cavaliers presently, as of the taping of this podcast, there are still games going on today. This is happening on Thursday. Not sure when I'm going to post this, probably Thursday night, but you may be hearing this Friday or whenever. Maybe it's way down the line, because who doesn't like to go back to NBA podcasts weeks after the fact, when they're at their most topical? So as of right now, the Cavs are the four seed. If the season ended today, they would be taking on Joel Embiid, new Philadelphia 76er James Harden, who likely won't be fat and lazy at that point. He will have played his way back into suddenly being happy. You would have to think that would be a very difficult matchup for the Cavs. So I am hoping 
at two and a half games out of first place and with a very easy schedule remaining, some would say the easiest schedule, tankathon.com, for example, that the Cavaliers can either climb, remain in a home court advantage type situation, and avoid two specific teams. The teams I would want to avoid are the Milwaukee Bucks and the Sixers. And it's not necessarily because I feel they are the best teams, but I do not like matchups that put the Cavs in a position of having to face these juggernaut bigs. Giannis, Joel Embiid. I personally would rather take my chances in a matchup against the Heat or the Bulls, or if the Cavs remain on the upper half, those top four teams in the East, then yes, I'd rather see the Raptors or the Celtics, hell, even the Nets at this point. Who knows what's going to come of them, but recency bias would tell you that they are plummeting into the toilet, and the only thing that salvaged them, kind of broke them out of that funk right before the All-Star break, was the fact that they got to take on the New York Knicks, who inexplicably blew a 28-point lead with no Kevin Durant, no Ben Simmons, no Kyrie Irving, and yet, they still squeezed by the Knicks. They are now the 12th team in the East, just above the Pacers, who have blown it up, the Pistons, who are in the middle of just being terrible, and the Orlando Magic, who, I don't know what they're doing. We'll never see Jonathan Isaac or Markel Fultz again. And I guess we're just going to get Jalen Suggs in and out of the lineup, and Cole Anthony shooting you know, 35% from the field one game and then looking great. I'm bitter about Cole Anthony. He's on the Fro Fantasy Squad. Completely unreliable. Anyway, back to the Caps. Let's bring this back around. Two All-Stars at All-Star break. The most recent of those additions, Jared Allen, who, due to James Harden and his hamstring injury, Adios, Batman! is not participating in the All-Star game. So, Adam Silver made the call, had to decide between a handful of worthy candidates. Jared Allen, of course, being one of them. Siakam being another, Bridges in Charlotte being another, Jalen Brown in Boston being another. Now, the Celtics, they're surging. They've been playing great. Siakam has been on a tear in January. So despite the fact that he's missed a handful of games, there was a big outcry for Silver to pick Siakam, reward him for this great play and for this surge that the Raptors are making. They've won eight of their last 10. They're up to the seventh seed after a very slow start. Certainly a worthy candidate. but. The man who was selected, Jared Allen. Now, some of you may recall that Jared Allen had a chance to get in on an injury replacement earlier, but LaMelo Ball was the first guy selected to replace Kevin Durant. There was an outcry amongst Cats fans, myself included. I was disappointed, but not totally shocked because the Hornets have two guys who are having all-star worthy seasons themselves in LaMelo Ball and Miles Bridges, and after the Cavs got Garland on the roster, I suspected they would not take two Cavs and zero Hornets. And certainly that's what has played out. But this second time around, because Jared Allen was sort of the favorite amongst NBA Twitter and Reddit as the man who got screwed last time, bullets were being thrown at Chris Middleton, less so to the LaMelo Ball, despite the fact they were in the moment. But long term, the real outrage seems to have Fallen upon Chris Middleton as the guy who people felt stole Jared Allen's rightful spot. They have lots of guards and wings represented in the East, but as far as centers go, there was only one center selected, and that was the starter, Joel Embiid. So, things looked good. However, there has been a bit of a surge from the Raptors and Pascal Siakam, who, since January, 
has put together some very respectable numbers, playing nearly 40 minutes a game, but averaging 23 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists, and doing it on almost 51% from the floor. And over 40% from three. Certainly. Tremendous. Here's what I would say. I would have had no problem had Siakam made it. But what I don't love in these all-star replacement debates is when, rather than selling the stats that he has put out and selling the impact on winning that he's made and his contributions and what his resume is, is when people will take Jared Allen's resume and they'll misrepresent it in completely nonsensical ways. The case for Jared Allen was never based on counting stats. Assist rate, if I hear people bring up stuff like, well, Jared Allen doesn't create for others. Well, Pascal Siakam has never shot 11 for 11 in a game, okay? That's, I could make that argument too, but it's not a fair argument because Jared Allen operates primarily around the rim and holding Siakam to that standard would be asinine. That's my point. And to make any argument that it is, is disingenuous. If you're going to make the argument for Siakam, there is two angles you can take, in my view. Two that are valid. One is, his statistics are simply better. He puts up more counting numbers. And in terms of all-star games, that really is generally where I will fall on the side of. There have been a lot of arguments in past seasons. Like, I remember when Andre Drummond made the all-star game And it was between him and Al Horford. And there were people arguing that Al Horford was on a better Boston team. And even though his stats weren't as prolific, he was a more impactful player to winning. And I remember thinking in the moment, who cares? Andre Drummond is leading the league in rebounding. He's having a great season statistically. He's the guy who should go. On top of the fact that he played for a team that wasn't yet represented. So in this case, that last point, it it wasn't relevant. Both Fred Van Vliet and Darius Garland were already on the roster. So it wasn't as if either guy getting selected or not selected was going to lead to a team not being represented. But in this case, on past precedent, I tend to fall on the side of counting stats. However, we all knew what his stats were when people were saying that he got screwed a month ago when these selections were being made, or or I should say the end of January, early February, February 3rd, or whenever they announced the reserves. It's because Jared Allen is so impactful without accumulating counting stats. His true shooting percentage this season is second in the league, only behind Gobert, 68.8%. His gravity in the pick and roll has a direct correlation on how successful the offense is and how successful Darius Garland is. Darius Garland is able to feast in the pick and roll and the mid-range pull-ups and the floaters largely just due to Jared Allen's existence and Evan Mobley's existence. And those don't show up on a stat sheet. You don't get an assist for standing there and keeping your defender from closing on Darius Garland. But that's a big part of the reason the Cavs have won games this year, because it's basically conceding two points on a Darius Garland floater. All because, you know, if you do contest Garland, Allen's dunking it, and he's not missing. And people will say, oh, Pascal Siakam, he's a facilitator. He's a primary option. Well, that may be true, but the counter argument to that is Jared Allen is not the primary option on offense. And on top of that, he's playing over six minutes less a game. Doesn't that make it all the more impressive? How are we going to look at counting stats as the be-all, end-all 
if one guy is the primary option, playing 38 minutes a night, and the second is not, playing 32 minutes a night. Doesn't that make what he's doing all the more impressive? 16 and 11 every night, without plays needing to be run for him, with less than 10 attempts per game? Nobody is saying that Jared Allen deserves to make the All-Star game because he's the most important player on the team, but he is perhaps one of the most impactful two-way players in the league. An all-NBA defensive caliber player who doesn't miss on the other end of the floor when called upon and opens up the floor for your primary score, Darius Garland. You take Darius Garland out of the offense, and it doesn't look great. A lot of what Allen is doing might not be possible without Garland there, but I think that's a vice versa argument. One unlocks the other. You can't really hold that against them. You can only look at the results, exceptional returns, on a system that is very difficult to defend. They complement one another so well that they've both raised each other into this all-star echelon of players. And that is reflected in that offensive rating and defensive rating. The reason a guy like him surges on both those things is not because he's the best offensive player in the league, but because on top of being hyper-efficient, the impact he has on the offense as a whole is pulled up greatly just by his presence on the court. The other argument that I think is very disingenuous is when people say Siakam is also a great defender. Siakam may be a good defender. He's not on Jared Allen's level. Honesty needs to go both ways here. Pascal Siakam is a far better offensive player, far more versatile, far better ball handler. All those things are true. But don't just gloss over this statement that, well, they're both great defenders. No. Jared Allen is a great defender. Jared Allen could be second-team All-NBA defense. He's playing and anchoring a top-three defense in the NBA. Last I looked, the Raptors are hovering around the middle of the pack, 13th, 14th, 15th. The Cavs are top three. That is quite a bit of separation. He's the linchpin playing the best basketball of his career, clearly the second-best center in the entire conference. I realize Bam Adebayo exists, but I'm talking about resumes this season. Bam has missed significant time. Based on performance, it's not debatable. Allen has been the second-best center for the first half of this NBA season. And perhaps one of the most efficient players in the game today. 20 times. 20 times so far this season. What have we played? 58 games. 20 times. So over a third of the time, he has missed less than two shots in the entire game. Multiple perfect games. I think he's had four games just in this first half where he hasn't missed a single shot. This is not a man who scores 24 points a game, but the fact that he's scoring 16 points a game on less than 10 shot attempts per game, that's what's impressive. It's not the volume. It's not the usage. It's the damage that he does with minimal usage. You could make the argument that he's the, what, fourth option on the team? You have Darius Garland. You have Kevin Love. You have Levert now, who will probably become more of a shooter than Jared Allen. And you have Mobley, who on any given night, Mobley may shoot more than him. But the arguments I don't like are that, well, he doesn't, all he does, he's just a rim runner. He's not just a rim runner. And there's a lot of things he's not. He's not a stretch big. He's not a three-point shooting big. He's very good with his back to the basket with either hand. He's an excellent screen setter. And, of course, a great lob threat. He's not simply a lob threat. 
There is plenty of times where he gets his own bucket. Anyone who says that, that he's just some sort of pick and roll big who just catches alley-oops, not the case. Not the case at all. Of course, we all know this. But that's what I don't like about this process of fans being upset their own guy doesn't get selected. So they find ways to tear down Jared Allen. It's the same thing that's wrong with the MVP debate. A lot of times, in order to strengthen your perceived case for whoever your favorite candidate is, like me personally, I think I would put Embiid over Jokic. Now I realize there's a million things that fall in Jokic's favor. The problem is, it's very hard to make those arguments without giving you a list of things that Jokic can't do, which Embiid does do. I don't want to fall into that trap because I realize how frustrating it is for me as a fan of Jared Allen watching people who wanted Siakam to get in doing that right now. All you have to do is look at the advanced stats to know that his impact is far greater than simply saying, well, he only averages 16 points. This isn't me discrediting Siakam. He worthy candidate. He should probably get in if Levine doesn't end up playing. I would have had no problem with him being picked over Jared Allen. But now I have this little seed of hate just sprouting inside of me because there's a large group of people that tried to build up Siakam by tearing down Allen. And not in a legitimate way. A legitimate way is simply saying Siakam's stats are far better than Allen. An illegitimate way to critique Jared Allen is to ignore all the things that don't strengthen your argument. His efficiency, how great of a defensive player he is. If you just never bring those up, that's not being truthful. If I make the argument, as an Allen supporter, that Allen's impact on winning has been tangibly better this year, that can be supported with numbers and statistics as objectively true. Now, it is fair to say that that should not matter with All-Stars. I've always hated the idea that you have to be on a winning squad to make an All-Star team. As a fan of many, many terrible Cavalier teams, I think we should be rewarding individual statistical accomplishments, first and foremost. So in that way, I'm in the Siakam camp. But I want the Cav. I always will. I'm sorry. Again, my whole point here, just to put a bow on this thing, is just be fair. That's all I'm asking. I can fairly say that Siakam should be an all-star, but I can also fairly say that it's not because Jared Allen isn't worthy. The man who he's replacing, James Harden, let's touch on this. I wanted to get back to this Ben Simmons-James Harden trade because a lot of trades have happened. We, of course, have discussed the Levert trade. Let's touch on that first since we're on Cavalier subjects before I kind of go off the deep end into other NBA stuff. I think everybody was probably a bit frustrated with Levert in the Hawks game. His shot wasn't falling. It wasn't his best performance. And for as much as we saw a game where Levert took over late in the game, ripped off eight fourth quarter points and helped lead us to a victory, two games later, what we saw in the fourth was when we were down by a sizable amount and we needed some quick buckets, we were handing it to Levert and he was sort of pounding the ball, a bit of a ball stopper. And when your shot isn't falling, I believe he was four for 12, one of six from three-point land. We were in a big enough hole that we needed to get some quick buckets. So it's a skill set that at times I think it will feel like a luxury. But as he gets acclimated to this offense, I hope that we get a little bit more out of him in the way of just operating in the flow. And there were a few plays. There was a couple times he made quick dives to the basket and guys found him cutting. Those are the ones that make me optimistic. 
I'm not going to sit here and say that it's a failed experiment. It's a experiment's working flawlessly. Clearly, there will be hiccups along the way. But I think we have seen in spurts how nice it is to have a guy who can create for himself, get to the mid-range level, and get a decent look off. And they're not always going to fall. There's going to be nights. I mean, he's certainly not a guy who's had blistering efficiency over the years. Colin Sexton has always been a far more efficient scorer than him. But the vert has a little bit more size, probably a little bit more, you know, spin fadeaway game to him, where Colin Sexton is more predicated on just pure speed. And he's powerful too in his own right. But eventually we're going to have both these guys back. For now, we're trying to replicate a lot of what we lost in Sexton and Levert, which is a guy who can go out there and get you his own bucket on his own. So I'm not going to sit here and nitpick the guy too much when the shot wasn't falling for him. Did he succeed against the Hawks? No. It was a rough night for him. I freely acknowledge that. But I think considering what we saw since his acquisition, he has had some stretches where he has just put the offense on his shoulder and ripped off a handful of buckets in a row. And certainly that is something as he becomes more comfortable in the flow of the offense that we should be able to see more. The Hawks and the Sixers, they're difficult opponents. They're good teams, despite where they sit in the standings. I know the Hawks are only 10th, but they seem to be stringing together some things. And watching that game against the Hawks, Trey Young got whatever he wanted to. Usually, he's a guy that can shoot them out of the game, but he was drawing fouls. He was getting a Coro to put his arm in enough, and he just ripped through every time. And, and they didn't all turn into shooting fouls. I'm not even complaining about the foul calls he got. Those were legitimate fouls, and I liked that they didn't reward him with shooting or being in the motion when clearly they were the type of fouls that Trey was getting because he's just a smart player who knows, I can just force the action here. But the tough part is, we were already in the bonus by the middle of the third quarter, and when the Cavs managed to fight all the way back and be right there, getting into the bonus that early, it just gave up too many easy points on the line, you miss a few shots, and next thing you know, you're down eight or nine points, and things are looking way more bleak. The Philadelphia 76ers, they just outplayed the Cavs. There's nothing really to be said there. There was some good individual performances along the way. I think we need to be patient and just hope that we can get some sort of flow going into the second half of the season, which by all accounts is a pretty favorable schedule for the Cavs. Coming out of the All-Star break, there's two clearly winnable games. They're in Detroit to start the second half, the quote-unquote second half, and then they host the Wizards. Following that, we'll get the Timberwolves, the Hornets, another crack at the 76ers, then the Raptors will be taking on the Cavs, and then the Pacers, the Heat, the Bulls. Four-ish games are all games that should be winnable. They get the Pistons, they get the Wizards, they get the Timberwolves, they get the Hornets. They could go 4-0 there. They could go 3-1. I think 3-1 is probably a little more realistic. And then that back-to-back against the 76ers and the Raptors will be an excellent barometer. By that point, we may see Harden fully integrated in what the Sixers are doing and get our first chance at that new-look group. Now let's pivot to that trade. Finally, after months of speculation, we see where Ben Simmons lands, and it's in Brooklyn alongside Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, or at least eventually alongside those guys. I had been waiting for the deal to happen, seemingly because, and I talked about it on this podcast, my feeling was, They were not going to risk losing Harden for nothing. You simply can't do that. It's what happened with the Lakers when they went all in for Dwight Howard and then they treated him like garbage when he was there. 
And when he hit free agency, they were putting up billboards begging him to come back. But he walked away, went to Houston, and they recouped nothing. The Nets couldn't risk that, not with two supreme talents like Durant and Irving trying to win a title, despite what's happening with the injuries and the play, not playing at home games. Eventually, that'll be resolved. And you can't slam the window shut on trying to put talent around those guys because it is a very top-loaded squad. And a lot of the ancillary parts were older, were vets, Blake Griffin, Marcus Aldridge, Paul Millsap. You got to use the opportunity to bring in any talent you can. And certainly, Ben Simmons is still an excellent player. He's just mentally kind of a disaster. But it's hard to even make that argument when there's questions around whether Harden was dogging it or not, whether the hamstring injury was legitimate, whether he was really trying as much as he could. Because certainly, the James Harden we've seen this season is not on the same level as the James Harden that we saw in the dominant part of his Houston stretch. And he's playing alongside elite players, I realize. Not everybody was expecting him to put up the same numbers. But his impact on winning, there were times where he could carry the Rockets through incredible stretches, largely by himself. And now, with this Brooklyn iteration, where he's been forced to do that because of Durant's injuries and because of Kyrie's unavailability because of his vaccination stuff, he just hasn't had the same impact. The Nets have just spiraled down the standings over the course of the last several weeks, their last 10 games, they've won two of. And one of them, like I said, I mentioned, it, had to, it took a miraculous comeback against the Knicks to happen. So Durant can't get back soon enough. Now, looking at this trade, usually, I mean, if you were to tell me in December that there'd be a trade where I disliked some other party in the trade as much as Simmons and how he's conducted himself, it'd be hard to imagine. But I don't even know who I want to win here. I'm almost, though, rooting for the Sixers in the sense that Embiid has been just a great professional this year, obviously an incredible player. I've loved that they're succeeding without Simmons. They're playing good basketball. Simmons just basically shut it down. And whether you think his mental health thing is valid or not, and he was pressed on it in the, his introductory press conference in Brooklyn, his answers were completely nonsensical. I'll play those here, actually. Uh, here's the first piece of audio I'll play, and I'll, I'll just let it speak for itself. I left the question on the front um, so that you can hear the question the reporter asks and then Ben's initial answer. Was there anything this season that could have changed your mind and got you to play again? For me, it was just making sure mentally I was right to get out there and play again. So that's something I've been you know, dealing with. Um, and it wasn't about the fans or coaches or comments made by anybody. It was just a personal thing for me. Um, that was earlier than, you know, that, that's that series or, or even that season that I was dealing with, um, you know, and that organization knew that. So it, it was something that, you know, I, I continue to deal with and, you know, I'm getting there and getting to the right place to, you know, get back on the floor. So that's the first time I think any of us have heard him say that he told the organization that the mental health issues proceeded. They knew about them before even the playoff choke, which I'd never heard, and which certainly the organization doesn't seem to be confirming. Somebody here is fibbing. The reporters were a bit confused by that explanation, I'm sure. He didn't give any definitive information about when he's going to be back. Later, they asked if he'd be ready for the Philadelphia matchup, and he said he hopes so. Do you think you can be ready for that? You know, physically, mentally, you know, I imagine that's a pretty... I hope so. That would be incredible if he's actually in the game where they return to Philadelphia. 
consider me amongst those skeptical. It's kind of one of those things where you're in a no-win situation. I'm sure that he probably does want to go out there and destroy the 76ers. I'm sure the competitive part of him would want that, but it sort of undercuts the idea that he was just mentally unable to take the court there if he's immediately ready to drop himself back into what perhaps will be the most hostile environment that he's ever seen. Because if you go back there and you play and you say, oh, no, I'm mentally ready now, that's perhaps the most traumatic situation you could put yourself in. A fan base that hates you on the road and you're going to be miraculously healed that quickly, it kind of undercuts your whole argument. And I think that's the gray area that people wrestle with with this is nobody wants to be the guy out here being not very sensitive to mental health issues. But I'm just a tiny podcast with no sponsors, so I'll say it. I think Ben Simmons is full of shit. I'm open to the idea that he might not be, but it's going to require a lot more communication on his end for me to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because right now, all I really have to go off of are his actions. He's, he's not verbalized with words to anyone other than his inner circle what he's dealing with. So all we're seeing is that he shows up at camp, has a cell phone in his pocket, seemingly gets in disputes, refuses to allow teammates to visit him in the offseason, didn't even talk to Joel Embiid when he left, and maybe that slanted against him. But I think it would go a long way for him to advocate on his own behalf. Look at how people treat Kevin Love. It's because he's open and honest about the stuff that he dealt with. Had he said nothing to anyone and had he just clammed up and said, well, this is personal and I don't want to talk about it, he might still be getting killed. Here was the follow-up question that the reporters asked, where Ben Simmons kind of contradicted himself. So you're saying that the mental health issue preceded you requesting the trade uh, in the offseason. Okay, I guess, can you just shed a little light on the timeline and everything? Yeah, for me, it wasn't, the mental health has nothing to do with just the trade, you know. It was, it was a bunch of things that I was dealing with as a person in my personal life that I don't really want to go into depth, to depth with. But yeah, I'm here now, so you know, I'm just looking forward to getting back on the floor and and building something great here. I don't even know what that means, that the mental health issue had nothing to do with the trade because that was the whole reason that you couldn't suit up again in Philadelphia, which basically forced their hand to have to trade you. So I don't know what he was really trying to say there. I think listening to this press conference, I'm sure the reporters were equally frustrated because people do want answers, and, and not in a hating on Ben Simmons way. I just would like to hear in his own words for him to explain the situation in a way that makes sense to anyone, whether you side with him or you don't side with him. I didn't come away from that initial press conference understanding at all really what's preventing him from getting back on the court. And just to wrap up this discussion, there was someone who asked him directly what he would say to people who say that his mental health stuff was all fake. When people are commenting or opining that this was not real, this is fake, these are lies, whatever. Do you take offense to that? No, because I can't tell somebody how they feel because I don't know how they feel. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know how they're processing things. So I can't do that, but I can't also put somebody else you know, down for having those comments. I'm just not that person, you know? I'm never going to put my teammates down, um, my coaches or anything like that. So it's just, you know, it is what it is. So Ben Simmons taking the high road there. As far as on-court results, I will just say this. I think that it could end up being good for the Nets. I'm one of those people who's in the camp that they've got two elite offensive talents and Irving and Durant, 
and a guy who plays elite-level defense and who can facilitate and who can just score a little bit as needed, I think it may end up being a better fit. And it's hard to say how good the fit would have been between Harden, Durant, and Kyrie because, shockingly, they played less games together than Russ, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James have. So certainly not a huge sample. But I like it for the Nets. I think they got a great player in Seth Curry, a great support player, a good you know, floor spacing shooter. They end up getting Ben Simmons. And to top it off, they get some first round picks, which who knows what they become. But just on a fit level, I think there's a distinct chance that Simmons could do more to complement Irving and Durant than Harden would have. We won't ever know for sure. But couple with that, the other pieces that came back, Andre Drummond, Seth Curry, and a couple of first-round picks. And I think the Nets came out pretty good here. Here's hoping that the next Fear the Fro podcast, I'm celebrating an all-star MVP for Darius Garland. I'm skeptical, but I'm holding out hope. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody who's jumped on board just a half a season in. And it's incredible the kind of numbers and support that you guys have shown. What's relatively a very niche podcast. Appealing to us, the Cavalier fan. So thank you for subscribing to the Fear of the Fro podcast. Thank you for rating it, for writing reviews, for all the participation. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cavs fan, and I will be back on the next Fear of the Fro podcast. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.